Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to episode eight of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We appreciate you joining us for this episode as we continue our journey into the sports history of the year 1920. 100 years ago. Last week, we talked about all of the sports in 1920, tennis, golf, football, college football, boxing, the Olympics, and many other sports. But today is all about baseball as we talk about the American League, the National League, the Negro Leagues, and all of the events that happened in America's pastime 100 years ago. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dan. I'm, uh, Thinking about the baseball, and I was I was trying to come up with a comparison, and it's tough to find an American comparison, but you know, in, for modern times. But I think the the real comparison in terms of baseball and how much it dominated the landscape relative to other sports would be thinking of modern European nations and soccer or football, as they call it over there. You know, there are people who like other sports and maybe even care more about other sports, but in general, the dominant thing in the landscape and the beginning and the end of sports for a lot of people is soccer. And I think when you're going back a hundred years in this country, baseball is, is sort of occupies the same space in terms of how much cultural relevance it had compared to anything else sporting. Baseball then is the way the NFL is now. Most people who are sports fans these days are at least to some extent a fan of the NFL same thing in those days. Baseball really ruled the national sports conversation. I think you would have been hard pressed to find many people who were sports fans, but not baseball fans. And that's in large part, or at least in part, in some part, due to some of the people and one person in particular who we'll talk about a little bit later. We have a little bit of housekeeping to do before we get started. First of all, if you are enjoying the Hello Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network, we encourage you to subscribe. We encourage you to rate us. Uh, give us a nice five-star rating on your podcast app of choice and tell us what you like about the podcast. You should tell a friend. You should feel free to email us at helloldsports at gmail.com. That's just as it sounds, helloldsports, all one word, at gmail.com. And then the other exciting thing is that we finally have a bit of a social media presence. We have a Facebook page now for Hello Old Sports. Yeah, so we, um, I set it up a little earlier uh, this past week. So you can, again, it's the same thing. It's listed as Hello Old Sports Podcast. If you search in the Google or excuse me, in the Facebook search engine, it pops up uh, right now. It's got a picture of our 
sort of old-timey wordmark logo as our profile picture, and then until we can get a picture of us together recording the podcast, the sort of banner image is just a picture of the polo grounds, which I've shared before. I will use any excuse to post. And right now we've got really just a, just a, a ripple of, of activity, but got links to every one of our episodes on the main Sports History Network website. Obviously, like my brother said, you can do it through your preferred podcast listening method of choice, but just to send, you know, to have links on the Facebook page to each episode, I, I did it that way. And certainly we really appreciate it if you are a regular listener or if you're an irregular listener, if you could like that page, the more people like it, the more it'll, it'll show up in everybody's feeds. And if you can just like that and certainly, you know, chip in some comments or some feedback for two reasons. One, it lets us know, A, that people are, are listening, which is encouraging. And uh, two, just to also, like Dan said, if there's a, a topic you'd like us to, to touch on or if there's something you can add on to or had a question about, we can certainly uh, continue the conversation, as they say, in the uh, social media space. So Facebook page, it's Hello Old Sports Podcast. Facebook friends with me or, you know, are listening to this podcast, it should be relatively easy to find. If you have any questions on that, you can email us at our email address that Dan mentioned, but you're into the new era now, Facebook. And we will probably, or we will, we won't probably, as as the new year dawns, we will probably put out conversation pieces that will maybe inform the conversation as we get set to record some of these episodes. One of the episodes that I've been kicking around in January is right around the time when the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame inductees are announced to maybe sort of take an informal poll of our listeners and fans and friends and that type of thing. So it'll be a good way to interact with us to sort of compliment the podcast. This is the second of two episodes in our 1920 series. This is scheduled to air on Thanksgiving Day. So happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you all are having a lovely holiday. And uh, after that, we have an episode coming on Army football, which Andrew and I are going to record knock on wood in person. So the first ever uh, Hello Old Sports episode that will be recorded in person with the Army-Navy game coming. It's a good time to talk about the history of the Army-Navy game, Army football, that type of thing. And then once December rolls around, we are going to start talking about our in memoriam and the Unfortunately, the deaths just sort of keep on coming. We've had a few more just very recently with Paul Horning and Tom Heinsohn, two Hall of Famers in their respective sports. So lots of folks to talk about and honor when we do our In Memoriam episodes in December. Before we get started, just a few things sort of carried over from last week, a few corrections that I have I think it was me. It may have been Andrew as well. When we were talking about the NFL in 1920, we referred to the APFA, the American Pro Football Association. I think we may have a couple of times sort of transposed the digits or transposed the letters and said AFPA, but it's actually APFA. And then just a few corrections. I had mentioned that Cumberland Posey, the baseball and basketball Hall of Famer, was the founder of the Homestead Grays. He owned and operated the Grays for many years, but he didn't exactly found them. And then I had talked briefly about the 1920 Olympics and the match between Belgium, the host country, and Czechoslovakia. And 
it was the gold medal game with Belgium defeating Czechoslovakia. And when I went back and looked just to sort of double check myself, I noticed that Czechoslovakia was not listed anywhere among the medal winners. So I thought maybe I had made a mistake and the game I was talking about wasn't actually the gold medal game. So I did a little more digging. Turns out it was the gold medal game, but Czechoslovakia, the Czechoslovakian team walked off the field during the game to protest some of the decisions that were being made by the referee, which subsequently led to their team being disqualified from the Olympics and not getting any medals. So a team that lost the gold medal game did not get any medals because they were disqualified for walking off the field. So just a little bit of an interesting story there to supplement the material that we talked about last time. We don't often talk about Olympic soccer here on Hello Old Sports, so when we do, we try and get it right. (laughs) Why don't we go ahead and get started? There's a lot to talk about in the baseball world of the 1920s, and a good place to start would be with the founding of the Negro Leagues in 1920. Now, it's important to note that The Negro Leagues were not by any means a monolith. And so when you hear people talk about the Negro Leagues, the Negro Leaguers, and we'll probably delve into this much more in future episodes, there are any number of things that can be referred to. It can be organized leagues. It can be sort of black barnstorming teams. I just finished reading a book that I will put in the show notes called Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame uh, by a gentleman by the name of Stephen Greens, who talks about, uh, he writes about 24 Negro League players who he believes deserve to be inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but are not yet in Cooperstown. And he makes clear that oftentimes, unlike their major league counterparts, Negro leaguers would often leave teams in the middle of seasons. They would go and play abroad in Latin America because either because of racism or just because they could get a better paycheck there. So when you think of the quote unquote Negro leagues, it is very much not a single entity. And it would also be wrong to assume that there were no black teams or black players prior to 1920. There are great black teams great black players going back probably to sometime in the 1880s. But historians, statisticians, when they talk about the Negro Leagues, the Negro National League, which was founded by Rube Foster in 1920, is the first league that's considered from a sort of a statistical point of view to be a quote unquote major league. So it's an anniversary worth commemorating for that reason. Exactly. And it's also worth pointing out, you know, you mentioned some of the sort of pre-1920 teams, you know, the Cuban Giants specifically, and, and a few other ones, the Page Fence Giants. But it's also worth pointing out that for a very brief time in the 19th century, there were some black players in what passed for the major leagues at the time. Fleet Walker being the one that's the most sort of remembered in the public consciousness. but you know, in the sort of tumultuous times, both in the early days of baseball and post-Civil War, there were some some things that you would not have, that have sort of unfortunately been lost to history, that there were the the handful of, of African-American players who, of course, faced horrendous discrimination at, in all walks of life, baseball not being an exception. 
But as the 19th century wore on and the color lines across the nation were reinforced, that also applied to baseball and the few black players that there were found themselves on the outside until Jackie Robinson in 1947. There are a lot of parallels and it's fitting that we are talking about them as part of the same series. There are a lot of parallels between the founding of the Negro National League in 1920 and the founding of the NFL the same year. And both kind of result from, first of all, both are largely concentrated around the Chicago Midwestern area. They also both were an effort to bring about organization to what had basically been a loosely affiliated group of barnstorming teams that would schedule games against anybody, league teams, non-league teams, very talented teams, very untalented teams. They would schedule these games. And so both the organization of the Negro National League and the organization of the APFA in 1920, the future NFL, were done for those reasons of trying to bring some order to the chaos. Obviously, with the black baseball leagues, there was the further further motivation of trying to do whatever they could to one day integrate the game. But beyond that, there are a lot of parallels between the two. As you said, I think that's exactly right. I think it's to the modern eye, a lot of it looks like, well, this is really both talking about the original NFL and the Negro Leagues. It looks like, well, this is much more not an organized league than it is an organized league. The things we think that define a league, you know, like you said, players left in the middle of seasons and switch teams. And you had seasons that didn't end with teams playing near the same number of games. But I think it's a mistake to sort of diminish how much a step up even that was from what it, you know, what you had in the, in the previous sort of, era before it was even loosely incorporated or, or loosely organized into what could constitute a league. So when we talk about 1920, we talk about the Negro National League. It is really the creation of one man, and that man is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Rube Foster, who had first been a great right-handed pitcher in the Negro Leagues, had pitched exceptionally well, not only against his fellow black teams, but also against white teams and white players doing exhibition games and that type of thing. One of the things that you see in the Negro Leagues is, and also that you saw in the NFL, that you saw in early baseball in the 1870s and the 1880s, you know, white baseball, that is, a lot of great players also became great organizers. And that was sort of the same thing with Foster and Foster, in addition to sort of managing the Chicago American Giants, he also, as the 19 teens are going on, he's gradually acquiring more power in the black baseball community. And he is acquiring what's known as the, the booking power, his booking control. He is, as the teens are going on, he is more and more having power in the Chicago area and the Midwest in general of how these games between black teams are scheduled. So 
a little bit more about Foster. He was a, a very strong taskmaster as a manager. He was not somebody maybe who got along with all of his players because he could be harsh. He was a, a very strong-willed leader. And the sort of seminal book on Negro League history was written by a historian named Robert Peterson. The book is named called Only the Ball Was White. And I just want to read to you a quote about Foster from one of his sons, actually. One time, Jelly Gardner was sent up to bunt, and he tripled. He came back and sat down on the bench. The old man took that pipe he smoked, he always had it, and he popped him right across the head. And he fined him and told him, as long as I'm paying you, you'll do as I tell you to do. So a very strong-willed manager, like a lot of strong-willed coaches and managers and executives, maybe not loved by the people who worked for him, but a real power in establishing this Negro National League in the year 1920. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out that you've, I've heard similar a similar story to the one you just told about John McGraw, the longtime giant manager. And there's always been sort of the caveat with, with that, that it's maybe apocryphal. But in his version of the story, he tells a guy to bunt, the guy hits a home run, and he just finds him. So... Everybody always, the example, the story people always use about how much of a taskmaster McGraw was in the Foster version of a similar story, he doesn't find the guy, he hits him in the head with something. So just sort of. And then finds him. And then, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of adding literally insult to injury. Punch <laughs> 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 a guy or hit him in the head with a pipe and then find him on top of that. But, um, you know, yeah. So just that's kind of the interesting. I had never heard that story before that you just told as it relates to Foster, but it just kind of struck me how wow the example they always use for McGraw being a really stern, you know, bench manager. Here's the same story with Foster, but more severe. And it's also just to sort of bring the story full circle. It's been rumored, although the truth of all these stories are not true, but it, it's been rumored that. John McGraw hired Rube Foster to help Christy Mathewson learn how to improve his pitching. Now, true or not true, hard to say, but it's at least a rumor that was always out there. So just to give you an idea, the original Negro National League is made up of eight teams, and that is Foster's own Chicago American Giants, the Detroit Stars, the Kansas City Monarchs, who would become possibly the most famous Negro League team through the decades, the Indianapolis ABCs, the St. Louis Giants, the Cuban Stars, the Dayton Marcos, and the Chicago Giants, not to be confused with Foster's Chicago American Giants. The Chicago Giants only play in 14 games. Most teams play somewhere between 40 and 60 games. Again, much like the early days of other leagues, everything is a little bit fluid at that time, as it would stay, frankly, in black baseball, as teams sort of struggled to stay afloat and looked for exhibitions to supplement their league schedules. Not any different than any white minor league at the time i th i think the real that was how most leagues were except for the american league and the national league i mean i think if you did a dive into any unaffiliated minor league 
you know, that was a white league at the time, you probably saw plenty of guys jumping teams or teams playing, you know, being more interested in making money playing exhibitions and things like that. So not to say it was a minor league, but it, in terms of structure and, and sort of the uh, Wild West aspect of it, it probably had more in common with a with a white minor league than it would with the American or the National League. I just want to go on a little bit of a digression here because what you said kind of reminded me of something that I had thought about throughout this year. And I guess I'm speaking specifically to baseball, but, but to a certain extent to the other sports too, to, to hockey and to basketball and even to the NFL to, to a certain small degree. It struck me this year in the midst of all of the COVID, the outbreak, and then all of the subsequent shutdowns and lockdowns and then loosening the restrictions and then having to tighten the restrictions again. The way some of these sports have had to deal with this has kind of reminded me of the way things were in sports in sort of the late 19th and early 20th century with schedule changes on the fly with not every team playing the same number of games in, in baseball with, you know, rule changes that you may never have imagined previously to try and get the games in. So it's funny how in a lot of ways, when it comes to sports, everything old has been new again this year where these leagues in a struggle to survive have really been willing to do things and make changes on the fly that they probably wouldn't have contemplated a few years ago. So just a, just a little bit of an aside that you reminded me of there. And while we're doing asides, I just, I want to go back to, so, and you and I used to always sort of laugh about this when they would in the Ken Burns baseball thing um, from the early, from the mid nineties when they discuss the founding of the, of the Negro national league, you know, they list the teams like you just, and we used to always laugh about, oh, well, there was eight teams in the league and five of them were named the Giants. And it seems like every time you hear about a black baseball team, they were named the Giants or, you know, more than half of them were. And in doing the research for this episode, what I discovered was that that was absolutely not an accident. If you go back to the barnstorming days, especially, that was a way for it was a code for a black team, basically. So. You know, you go back to 1912 or 1903 or however far back you want to go, and you might just have an ad in the newspaper or a, a sign on the, the grounds where they were going to play the game that says Thursday, the traveling Chicago Giants or the Cuban American Giants or whatever. And that was, I mean, obviously you had the New York Giants in the National League of the Polo Grounds, but it became a sort of code when you said oh, oh the, the so-and-so giants are coming to town okay that's a black team so that was why they did that i did not know that that's uh that's good information i I had not seen that in in my research so the league opens up on may 2nd the indianapolis abc's beat the fosters american giants the abc's their best player is oscar charleston when people, uh, sort of mainstream baseball history, historians talk about the Negro leagues and great players, more often than not, the two that you really hear about are number one, Satchel Page, and number two, Josh Gibson. Oscar Charleston 
based on his statistics, may have been the best of them all. In fact, Bill James, a number of years ago, when he put out his uh, uh, one of his historical baseball abstracts, listed who he thought the top 100 players were in baseball history. And he included Negro Leaguers, and he, I think, made Oscar Charleston something like either the fourth or fifth best player, or maybe it was the fourth or fifth best position player. So Oscar Charleston, really one of the all-time great Negro League players in history, and somebody who maybe doesn't get as much attention as a Satchel Page or a Josh Gibson, but somebody who's definitely worth noting. Yeah, I think he's one of the ones that kind of misses the era of, and really with any sport, but especially with, with the Negro Leagues. Like as you get later in the century, there's just so much more media coverage and newsreels and things like that. So it's easy to talk about those guys because especially a guy like, like Paige who ended up playing in the major leagues and you have some footage of him and, and certainly he was brought into the media. You know, he was very conscious of giving the media plenty to write about. But Charleston, even though he came well before those guys, is still somebody who gets mentioned on all the lists from historians of the top players in the history of the Negro Leagues. So there are some players who would eventually make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Bullet Rogan uh, is one that immediately comes to mind, who was with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1920, uh, leads the league. And all of these, I think it probably goes without saying, all of these leagues, the statistics are shoddy at best, especially early on. But a lot of good work has been done, even in the last 10 years or so, of trying to pull together as accurate as possible stats for the Negro Leagues. And even based on what they have, Rogan led the Negro National League in strikeouts. He had a record of 10-4. and four. We mentioned Charleston, and then another Hall of Famer who's worth mentioning is a gentleman by the name of Cristobal Torriente, who was a Cuban-born player who was a star outfielder with Foster's own Chicago American Giants. So he, Foster is long done playing at this point. He's only managing and running the league. But Torriente is the leader of the Chicago American Giants, and they go on to win the very first uh, Negro National League Championship. This is just a quote from another book. This is Mark Grabowski's Complete History of the Negro Leagues. By August of that first Negro National League season of 1920, any hope of keeping statistical records, even one lost records, over the course of an unbalanced schedule and without corroborative press coverage was abandoned, leaving history with a dearth of information regarding that black ball year. Rube Foster, however, went unchallenged when he unilaterally crowned the American Giants the winner of the league's first pennant. So <laughs> I guess if you own the league and you manage one of the better teams, you can just make yourself the champion. So the the Negro National League and future black leagues never completely organized, but they would certainly improve as the years go on. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're really talking about sort of a, a few different arcs. Obviously, I think the 30s into the early 40s is kind of considered the sort of heyday, if you will, of the, of the Negro Leagues. Sort of ironically, those the leagues were never in great financial shape. And then, of course, the Depression really hit them especially hard. But you tend to only hear about that last sort of 15 years 
really not even the last 15 years of the Negro Leagues. Basically, too often it gets treated as just the ramp up to Jackie Robinson. You know, nothing existed before the mid-30s and nothing existed the day Jackie Robinson played his first game for Brooklyn and we don't need to know anything else about the Negro Leagues. And certainly it's it's hard because, like you said, there's a lot of incomplete records and then there's a lot of folklore, so to speak, that gets, you don't know where the story ends and the story begins, but Foster is certainly one of the key, and when I say one of, I mean top two or three probably figures in the history of black baseball in this country. And unfortunately, like a lot of black pioneers in all walks of life, he did not have a happy end. This is true. He dies, I think, in, in about the mid 1920s. And I believe there were, I believe he died in it in what at the, at the time was called an insane asylum. He was institutionalized in 1926, and I don't think made it out of the 20s. So a sad ending, but a very unique figure in baseball history and one that's worth learning more about. Learning about the Negro Leagues is fun. It's sort of the way learning about 19th century baseball is fun because you just discover all of these great players that you had never heard of before. And it's just really now, obviously, there's a sadness there because of the reason why you may not have heard of these players. But if you're just from a pure baseball fan point of view, it is sort of fun to sort of unpeel all of these layers and learn about all these great players that you may never have or may not know as much about as you would know about other parts of baseball history. Andrew, did you have anything else to add on the the Negro Leagues for 1920? Not really. I guess I was just going to say that I'm sure you'll, like you mentioned, as you learn more, I'm sure when the episode goes, when this episode goes live, you'll have some links to some books that we can all take a look at if we're interested in learning more about it, correct? I will, absolutely. Those will be in the show notes and it's really, it's just a fun era to, to learn about. So why don't we transition here from some players and some figures who some people may not have heard about to somebody who I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has absolutely heard of. And that is one George Herman Babe Ruth. This was the beginning of Babe Ruth's career as a god. He had been a very good left-handed pitcher or potentially a Hall of Famer with the Boston Red Sox of the 19 teens. But in 1920, Babe Ruth is sold by the Red Sox to the New York Yankees. And that's when he really becomes the legend of Babe Ruth that we all know today. Yeah, I've thought often about, I don't want to say often, but occasionally about if Babe Ruth retired at the end of the 1919 season, for whatever reason, he never plays another game. Just the only thing he's got is that sort of seven-year run with the Red Sox, you know, from when he was 19 until 24. He's probably a guy that a lot of baseball, you would know who he is because you know pitchers of his caliber from that era you're familiar with and you, you know, would know, oh, he was one of the best pitchers on those Red Sox dynasty teams. But like you said, he might be a Hall of Famer, but 
even compared to, you know, he wouldn't have even been Christy Mathewson or Walter Johnson. He would be sort of a name in the sort of background of, of baseball history that was not an essential person to telling the baseball story. It was after he went to the Yankees, became a hitter, that I feel like sort of in retrospect, people look back and go, oh, and then he was a pitcher too. You know, but to see, it's obviously unprecedented, but it's almost hard to, it's almost impossible to sort of fathom that a guy who was a really good pitcher for seven years, even back then, I know it was a different game, but it's not like this happened then either, not only becomes an everyday player after having a six or seven year run as one of the best pitchers in baseball, becomes an everyday player and then becomes the best everyday player in the history of baseball, at least arguably. You, you just have to stop and recognize just how, first of all, just how incredibly different he was than anything that had come before. And then second of all, just as far as how many home runs he hit, he out-homered every team in the league practically for his first few years with the Yankees. And then just the fact that he had been such a talented pitcher and then became a legendary, beyond legendary hitter, like you said. So this all starts with a gentleman by the name of Harry Frazee, who as owner of the Boston Red Sox, a team that had won four World Series in the 19-teens, three of them with Ruth, decides in 1920 that he's going to sell Ruth to the New York Yankees. Exactly. So, and, and just to circle back real quick on what you said, I think this gets kind of overlooked as well, which is that the New York Yankees are the New York Yankees because of Babe Ruth. Like, it seems almost inevitable that the New York Yankees would be what they are now, but they were a, you know, a very nondescript franchise, worse than nondescript for the most part. And they got Babe Ruth and they became the biggest thing in sports. And because of that, in an era before any kind of drafting or free agency, they had more money than anybody else. They could sign more players than anybody else. They had better scouts than anybody else. It's something everybody knows, but I don't think anybody thinks about or, or doesn't think about often enough that we have this dynasty and even, you know, the last 20 years where they haven't won they won one championship. They are still the preeminent franchise in American sports. And that's because of Babe Ruth. The status they enjoy today is still in large part due to what Babe Ruth did. And I don't think that's true of any other franchise, of any other individual player, athlete, coach, etc. Absolutely. So we all know the story. Babe Ruth is a, you know, he's one of the best players on this late 19 teens. Red Sox team and owner of the Red Sox, Harry Frazee, is more interested in Broadway than he is in baseball and decides, hey, I can sell my best player off to make a few bucks and finance a Broadway musical. And he got what he wanted because he financed, you know, he sold Ruth. He used that money to produce the Broadway hit No No Nanette. And the Red Sox fell into obscurity and didn't win a championship for 85 years. Almost none of that is true. I want to just touch on that a little bit because obviously Ruth is the main player in this story, but anytime a guy gets sort of historically dragged through the mud in a way that's not accurate, I feel like it's worth going back to. So we talked about Ruth coming up in 1914 as a Red Sox and having those really good years, being a key player on those championship teams on three of them. In 1919, 
he's primarily switched over to becoming an everyday player while he's still with the Red Sox. The Red Sox had won the championship in 1918. 1919, they fell all the way down, I believe, to fifth. It was something like fourth or fifth. Um, Ruth had a good year. He hit 322, and he had 113 RBIs and 29 home runs. So it was a, a very good year, but it was a Red Sox team that was, again, clearly showing its age. They'd fallen out of being a perennial pennant winner to middle of the pack. Ruth was. As you know, it get, gets looked back on lovingly now, but Ruth was a hellraiser and he was a drinker and there were times it affected his play and he was rough on managers and owners and, and things like that. So he was someone who they could look to move from a baseball standpoint. And And I think there was also a general perception or at least so they said later among some of his teammates they were kind of sick of him they thought he was getting selfish or he was selfish and i believe there was actually an issue in 19 and i'm having trouble finding the article right now and i don't want to chase it because it's not central to the story but i believe there also was an issue that he literally that year something had happened in downtown boston where he crashed his car and you know there there were those kinds of issues so and what i'm trying to do is add depth to the story because this is something that I, I'm reading an article from the New York Times from 2004. It's actually from September of 2004, which is an interesting time frame for this article because we all know what would happen a month later or within the next month, which we will absolutely never do an episode on, at least not one that I'll be a part of. But um, <laughs> so, this is an article by George Vesey in the New York Times from 2004. And some of this I knew and a, a lot of this I had no idea about. In the last 25 years, the one thing that's at least come into public consciousness, no, no, Nanette, the Harry Frizzy Broadway hit that was supposedly financed by selling Babe Ruth to the Yankees, did not premiere until 1925. So a full five years after Ruth was a Yankee. Now, if you really want to connect the dots, the next play Ruth, uh, the next Broadway show that Frizzy produced after they sold Ruth was a modest hit and helped him finance No No Nanette, but that's really sort of jumping a bunch of lily pads there. The real truth is, like we said, Ruth was a, a guy who his teammates were getting tired of. He was on an aging team. Nobody was sure that, you know, he was he had been a pitcher. They were moving him to the outfield. Nobody was sure how that was going to to work long term. And the sense was generally this guy might do some things for the Yankees, but he's gonna be more trouble than he's worth. And certainly it was a bad trade or sale. I don't think anybody doubts that. But let's at least be accurate about what happened. And then there's some other things in this article that I hadn't realized that I wanted to to touch on. And again, this is from the Vesey article from 04. And he's quoting scholarship by a guy named Glenn Stout, who's a writer in New England or was at the time. Can I just um, Can I just interrupt you there? Stout has written probably the definitive book on this topic. It's called the the selling of the babe, and I'm actually I'm I'm looking at it right now. It's one of the books I use to prepare for this. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, Stout is probably the expert on this topic. I'll be honest. When he said, "Can I stop you there?" I was terrified you were going to say something like, "Hey, it was turned." You know, he was widely discredited in 2006. <laughs> All right. Well, we can skip. So a couple of, of I'm going to read directly from this uh, from this Times article for a second. It says, 
Because Free was a New- Frizee was a New Yorker and a showman, he was apparently fair game to be labeled as Jewish, when as far as anybody knows, he was of Presbyterian and Scottish ancestry. Anti-Semitism is no more or less vicious when it's directed at somebody who's not Jewish. Ford, they talk about Henry Ford, who bankrolled a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent. In September of 21, it had a long diatribe about the Jewish degradation of American baseball. The article asked the Red Sox had been placed under the smothering influences of the chosen race. And then the writer from that article says, Frizee, like so many of his kind, was in the show business, a manager of burlesque companies. Then he saw a chance in sport. So basically, this was an early dig at Frizee and his managing of the Red Sox in relation to his show business interests and pretty clearly lays the blame as he's a Jewish showman who's only interested in financing New York Broadway plays, and that's why he sold Babe Ruth. So uh, just kind of an interesting, I'd never heard that angle on it, although certainly he pieces the things together very convincingly there. But, you know, it, it it's not hard to, to see how people got very interested as as Babe Ruth became a legend in New York while he was still playing in the 20s and you know, all the stories about him and all the ghostwriters he had and all the stuff he endorsed and things like that, where, well, naturally, the fool who sold him in Boston couldn't have just done it because he over underestimated Ruth's potential as a power hitter and his marketability. It had to be because he was a cheap Jew who wanted to broad to wanted to finance Broadway plays in his home in New York. And the back and forth continues even after Ruth is sold. So at one point, Harrison Frizee said, it is after he's been traded. He says, quote, Ruth had become simply impossible and the Boston club could no longer put up with his eccentricities. While Ruth, without question, is the greatest hitter that the game has ever seen, he is likewise one of the most selfish and inconsiderate men that ever wore a baseball uniform. And the baseball public, according to press reports from all over the country, are beginning to wake up to the fact. So... Even after Ruth leaves the Red Sox, there's still a lot of talk about just how difficult he had become. And then if you just give me a second here. Yeah, and while you do, I'll I'll read another article or another quote I see from Frizee. And this was a contemporary quote at the time. And, you know, again, it's owner speak or in the current time, it would be GM speak about trading a player. But Frizee says the price was something enormous, but I don't care to name the figures. It was amount the club could not afford to refuse. I should have preferred to have taken players in exchange for Ruth, but no club could have given me the equivalent in men without wrecking itself. And so no deal. And so the deal had to be made on a cash basis. No other club could afford to give the amount the Yankees have paid for him. And I do not mind saying I think they are taking a gamble. The Boston club can now go into the market and buy other players and have a stronger and better team in all respect than we would have had Ruth remained with us. I don't wish to detract from Ruth's ability nor from his value. There is no getting away from the fact that despite his 29 home runs, the Red Sox finished sixth sixth last season. When the Boston fans want, I take it. And what I want, because they want, is a winning team rather than a one-man team that finishes in sixth place. So... Obviously, he was wrong. I'm not trying to say he wasn't wrong, but that doesn't sound anything different than you hear a GM say today when they trade a star player away. And Ruth, for his piece of this, says that basically he's traded because he asked for a higher salary and that then 
because he asked for a higher salary, they then decided that they're going to brand him as a malcontent and a troublemaker to avoid giving him the salary or to justify trading him away. So there's there's all sorts of different discussions to to be had when it comes to what exactly was the culprit for why Ruth was traded. I don't think we have to also remember that so much of the modern discussion, because I know we want to talk about Ruth in New York when the, in the first season, but so much of the modern narrative or, and especially pre 2004 around Babe Ruth being traded or sold from the Red Sox has to do with things that happened long after Babe Ruth had retired and died. If the Boston Red Sox didn't go 86 years without winning a championship, if the Bill Buckner game didn't happen in 1986, if the, you know, they didn't lose in 75 after the Carlton Fisk game six, all of this stuff after 86 was when the whole curse of the Bambino thing really started to take off. Obviously him being sold to the Yankees was always going to be a part of the story, but I feel like a lot of it is sort of not revisionist history, but history shaping this as some sort of Red Sox original sin that probably wouldn't have taken hold had in 1946, for example, the Red Sox won a World Series, which again had nothing to do with Babe Ruth, but sort of retroactively became the basis for anything that had gone wrong for the Red Sox for 70 years after that. So let's talk about on the field just for a minute here. I think it's worth noting, first of all, Ruth joins a Yankee team that has been steadily improving through the 19-teens. There's this sort of idea out there that the Yankees were just terrible every year, and then Babe Ruth joins the team, and that turns it all around. That's largely true, but it doesn't tell the full story, so... The Yankees had had a winning record the year before in a 140-game season, which was cut short because of World War I, 80-59 and 59 record. They have a Hall of Famer at third base in Frank Home Run Baker. They have a very, very solid major leaguers throughout the lineup, including Duffy Lewis, who had also won World Series with the Red Sox previously in the decade, Wally Pip, who people now know is the guy who was replaced by Lou Gehrig, but who was a very good player and uh, as an outfielder. And then you have uh, pitchers. You have Bob Shockey, who's somebody who a lot of people think maybe even belongs in the Hall of Fame as a 20-game winner that year. Carl Mays, who we'll talk about later. They also have, you know who... And you probably do know the answer to this, but I'll put it to you anyway. Do you know who plays in 12 games for the Yankees as an outfielder in 1919? I wasn't sure you were going to bring this up, so I was going to have to stop you. But um, yeah, he was not a major part of his Hall of Fame plaque is not going to mention the Yankees. And it's also not in Cooperstown. It's in Canton, Ohio. But for 12 games in 1919, a 24-year-old George, not yet Papa Bear Hallis, was on the Yankees in 1919. And ironically, you actually saw that a lot. Hallis, Jim Thorpe played. We talked about last week, Jim Thorpe played some baseball with the New York Giants. Ernie Nevers, another Hall of Famer of the 1920s, played uh, in the major leagues for a couple of years. So there really was some crossover in those years between 
Major League Baseball and professional football. Just sort of a little bit of a quick note on Ruth. He did 29 home runs for the Red Sox in 1919. He breaks that record, that single season record by July of 1920. He had always hit well on the polo grounds, which is where the Yankees are still playing at this point. Breaks the record in July 1920, goes on to hit 54 home runs in his first season as a Yankee. So he is the first player to hit 30 home runs in a season, the first player to hit 40 home runs in the season, and the first player to hit 50 home runs in a season all in the same year. The Yankees, they are in a battle with the White Sox and the Indians for the pennant. They're in first place as late as September 16th. And there are some reasons that we will get into momentarily as to why the Yankees may have tailed off a little bit towards the end of the year. But one of the ongoing debates among stat heads is which year was Babe Ruth's all-time greatest year from an offensive statistics point of view. And 1920 may very well be that year. It's certainly in the run. He, he obviously leads the league in home runs. He leads the league in RBIs with 135, leads the league in walks on base percentage, OPS of 1.379, which may very well be the all-time. Let me look this up real quick. Other than Barry Bonds, who had some crazy years in the early 2000s, Ruth is third all-time single-season OPS in 1920, behind only a couple of years from Barry Bonds. So statistically, this is just an incredible year for Babe Ruth in his first year on the Yankees. 172 hits. He hits 376. Like you mentioned, his OPS, his slugging percentage, 847. These are obviously not stats that existed at the time, although slugging percentage would come along fairly soon. But there, you can still, you have all the information to make these numbers now and put things into historical context. I mean, he obviously was always going to walk a lot, and he did throughout his career. And while there were some good players on this team, guys like Pip and, and Roger Peckinpah, guys who were on some of those early Yankee teams that, that won pennants, this wasn't like the 27 team where he had Gehrig right behind him. And he was responsible for so much of this team's offense. For reference, he has 135 RBIs. And actually, the second baseman, Del Pratt, has 108. But nobody else really has above 70 or doesn't get too far above 70. So. He is just by far the, uh, you know, by far the focal point of a of an offense that is also playing. I mean, they're playing their games in the polo grounds, which Ruth has said, you know, it's, they always talk about 1923 and the house that Ruth built. But those three years that Ruth played at the polo grounds, 20, 21 and 22, when they he's he later in, in his life and his career said, I cried when they took me out of the polo grounds. Because those short porches were not even really porches. <laughs> they were more, um, you know, I don't know what. But you, you did not have to hit the ball a long way in the polo grounds to hit a home run. To yeah, it's like barely 200 left. feet or something like it was crazy. I mean, like 220 or 240. Or so 
Ruth is present in 1920. I think that would be a good transition for one of the most tragic on-field incidents in the history of American sports. And there are very few instances in sort of American professional team sports where a player is either killed or very seriously injured. Obviously, in football, you've seen some players be paralyzed. Actually, we'll talk uh, in the In Memoriam episode in a few weeks about Travis Roy, who was a Boston University hockey player who played 11 seconds of one game and was then paralyzed for life on his very first shift. You had one player in the NFL in the 70s die of a heart attack, I believe it was, during a game. So it has happened, but the Carl Mays, Ray Chapman story of 1920 is still the only example in baseball history of a player being hit by a pitch and then dying as a result of his injuries. Yeah, I would also just, I know it's not a team sport, but I would also add uh, Dale Earnhardt. That's another one, sort yeah. Of a, yeah, and then this is a, another thing that sort of gets mixed in with the whole dead ball era and switch to home runs. And it's it's not totally unrelated, but again, it gets overly simplified that, oh, a guy died on the field in 1920. So then all of a sudden they had much more lively baseballs and, and things like that because the timeline just doesn't perfectly add up because this was 1920. It was the same year Babe Ruth was, what? how many home runs 54. did he hit in 20? 54. So it was already when Ruth was hitting 54 home runs. So it's not a purely either or scenario, although it all does tie into limiting what the pitchers could do and and uh, how many balls they used and things like that. But, um, you know, I know they've talked about the ball sort of ricocheting so hard off of Chapman that it was fielded by the infield because they couldn't tell that it wasn't. So basically what happens here is that Carl Mays, who was a submarine pitcher for the Yankees, he had actually also been with the Red Sox earlier uh, in his career. You start to notice a little bit of a theme here. He goes up. He had a reputation. He was a submarine pitcher, which for those of you who don't know what it means, basically means that he's basically almost throwing underhand. So it makes the ball harder to see. And he had a reputation for being, first of all, sort of an ornery guy in general, and then also somebody who would throw at batters, as a lot of players did in that time period. He goes up against Ray Chapman, who was a shortstop and an infielder, but mostly a shortstop for the Cleveland Indians uh, late in the 1920 season in the midst of a pennant race and Mays throws high and tight and hits Chapman in the head and Chapman collapses almost immediately is rushed to the hospital and dies uh, several hours later as a result of his injuries. And, um, you know, Mays was obviously not, was not a guy with a, a great sort of reputation, had a bit of a reputation of being a, Headhunter, which was not as uncommon at the time as it would be now. So there were plenty of guys who 
notoriously threw at people's heads, but Chapman did have a bit of a reputation for that. Or no, excuse me, Maze. I'm sorry, Maze had a reputation for being a bit of a headhunter. Uh, Chapman, that night, or that after the game was taken to a, a hospital, they discovered a skull fracture. Did make it until the next morning, but died the following day. Maze actually stayed in the game and continued pitching. Obviously didn't have any idea of how severe the injuries were going to be. Immediately after Chapman, in an interview a couple of months later, Chapman did say that he was sorry for what happened, but didn't feel guilty. He said he didn't hit him on purpose, although plenty of players, including, interestingly enough, Ty Cobb, who was friendly with Chapman, were very antagonistic towards Mays for, for the rest of his, his career. And, you know, I think he got a lot of, because uh, again, remember, this is 1920, so pitchers were hitting, was always kind of had to be concerned that guys were going to be coming for his Four head different that. teams in the American League, so basically half the league, and more than half the league, if you factor in the fact that the Yankees aren't weren't obviously going to call for the banishment of their own player. Four different teams, the Red Sox, Tigers, Browns, and Senators, all say that they're going to boycott any games that Carl Mays pitches in. They essentially are calling for him to be thrown out of baseball and like you said led by ty cobb in detroit and we'll obviously at some point one of these months will delve into the character of ty cobb he's a man of many many contradictions but there was no no shortage of animus towards carl mays in the wake of what happened here just a couple of other things that I think are worth noting. First of all, there are a lot of people who think that Carl Mays might be in the Hall of Fame today if he had not had this unfortunate incident happen. He's having a very good year in 1920, 26 wins, 11 losses. He leads the league in shutouts with six. He led the league in shutouts a couple of times. The following year, he leads the league in wins with 27, 27 and nine. Now it's a little different in the twenties, but nonetheless, this is still a guy who has one, two, three, four, five, 20 win seasons during his major collegiate, five, 20 win seasons with three different teams, Boston, the Yankees and Cincinnati uh, finishes up with a two, two Oh seven and one twenty six lifetime winning percentage. So hard to say because Stats were different in those days, but a guy who probably had a chance at making the Hall of Fame if it hadn't been for this accident. The other thing that's interesting to note is that after Chapman is killed, he's replaced by a rookie with the Indians by the name of Joe Sewell, who goes on in his own right to be a member of the Hall of Fame. Sewell plays a number of years with the Indians and then actually finishes career with the Yankees and is the starting third baseman in 1932 in the famous uh, Babe Ruth called shot seasons. So he gets his start under tragic circumstances, but ends up being uh, a Hall of Famer in his own right. So a lot of things stem from that tragic incident between Carl Mays and Ray Chapman in 1920. Yeah, and I'm reading an article that was actually, and the reason I don't want to quote it is because knowing the time frame, this was a, appeared in the November 1920 issue of Baseball Magazine, and it's supposedly written by Carl Mays, but I, 
I, I don't have enough faith given the time frame that outside of agreeing to let somebody write it in his hand uh, that he wrote it or really had much to do with it at all. So, but you know, it's very, I think the tone they have here is sort of, he feels remorseful, but not guilty. Cause you look at some of the headlines and it says like, Oh, Chapman never said he felt guilty about it. And it was like, well, he didn't feel guilty. He was upset and sorry it happened, but I guess he was differentiating feeling guilty about it. You know, to, to indicate if he felt guilty, he would be admitting that he did something wrong, you know? And, and just like I said before, it, it, sort of ties in with what you had in what was called the dead ball era. So not only could pitchers kind of do whatever they wanted with the ball, you also would only use a few balls a game. And then you had sort of the, it combined the the power hitting with Ruth as that became a bigger, it's funny because these last three stories all tie together because baseball was in a very big pivot point from what we're about to talk about. And Ruth came along and started hitting home runs, which was what the fans wanted to see. So coupled with the Chapman thing, it was okay. And I think Ruth probably had a lot more to do with let's use a lot more baseballs and let's tell the pitchers what they can't do to the ball. It probably had a lot more to do with let's get as many home runs as we can than it did with, well, one guy died from a pitch ball from a guy who's a notorious headhunter and a spitballer. And, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't think it really... Ruth was hitting home runs before this incident. Like we said, he broke the home run record two months before it happened. I'm sure that it didn't help what had happened with Chapman and Mays, but I, I tend to attribute it, like you said, more to a commercial decision rather than a sort of safety type decision. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't hurt things, but... I really doubt it was, uh, I, I really doubt that was the prime motivator of those owners who every other indication you have of them at the time was not that they were all that concerned with players' safety or health or well-being or general happiness overall. Not that they wanted them to die. I, I don't think that was the, you know, they. I don't think that was the driving force behind them spending a lot more Agreed. money on things like baseball. All right, so let's move on to the end of the 1920 season. The season is boiling down to a pennant race between three teams in the American League, and that's the Yankees, that's the Indians, and that's the Chicago White Sox. And in 1919, the White Sox had thrown the World Series against the Reds, but that was not something that was immediately discovered. And so the White Sox, uh, other than one of the eight Black Sox who was named by the name of Chick Gandil, who had basically retired, the other seven Black Sox all come back to the team in 1920. And there's just this icy tension between them and the players on the team that were clean, but that knew that there's some of their teammates had thrown the world series. Something that I just found out about literally in the last month or so, there's pretty strong evidence that the white Sox threw some games during the 1920 season. Yeah. And I had, I had read a book and I forget what it was. It wasn't the famous eight men out book, but I, I had read that a few years ago about how, you know, these same guys 
were playing throughout the 1920 season and the same secret, you know, even at this point, it might not have even been about greed or about anything else. It was that they, you know, these gamblers had leverage over them and they had their hooks in them. So they could say, hey, it wasn't every game, certainly, especially with the increased scrutiny, but they could go to them and say, hey, you know, we uh, we could use you to drop this game against St. Louis on Sunday. And, and, you know, again, it was the same guys. It was two starting pitchers and a lot of the key position players. Like you said, it was everybody. It was seven of the ace. They could go to them and, and say, we need you to, to do something for us. And they kind of didn't have a choice. What were they going to do at that point? You know, the Black Sox scandal is, again, another thing that movies and TV have painted a certain picture you know if you see the eight men out movie it's very clear that charles comiskey's being such a skin flint is the reason that the white Sox had no choice but to throw the world series history doesn't quite back that up they were in fact one of the higher paid teams in major league baseball and some of the stories they tell in there aren't exactly true so it's it's not simply like everything there's not a straight good guy and a straight bad guy but certainly the white Sox players who had been willing to throw an entire World Series the year before, weren't going to be morally or practically averse to dropping games if they felt they needed That's to. That's exactly or even right. Just if so they wanted to. There are allegations in 1920 that a game was thrown by the Chicago Cubs, and this leads, and obviously with prohibition starting and all that type of thing, there's a lot of crime, gambling, prohibition, bootlegging, all that stuff, you know, the whole Al Capone era. But the Cubs are accused of throwing this game, and that leads to a grand jury investigation. And long story short, that's how the Black Sox scandal is eventually uncovered by the proceedings of this grand jury and what was originally an unrelated matter. And Eddie Seacott, who had been one of the ringleaders, he goes to the grand jury and makes a confession. And then there's all of this, these machinations. And then there's eventually, uh, there's a trial and they're acquitted. And then baseball brings in a, its first commissioner, the first commissioner in the history of sports in Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And he decides that any player, regardless of what the jury had decided, any player who either threw a game, took money, was aware of a fix and didn't report it, every single one is banned for life. Yeah. So and that came, what was there, four games left or something in the season that year? It was they were still it was a three headed pennant race at that point between them, Cleveland and and uh, the Yankees. They still had a chance to win the pennant. It wasn't over. They weren't at first, but they mathematically could have won the pennant but with just a handful of games left in the season they were they were all uh, tossed for their for the rest of and in addition to the obvious sort of just the the mental shock of it going into these final games they had lost some of their best players so they weren't going to win just based on that either so just to to kind of go back a little bit they they highlight specifically a Boston series and this is an article on the Saber website from a few years ago so after defeating the uh, New York 16 to 4 on August the 26th, the White Sox had a three and a half game lead over Cleveland and the Yankees were four back. After that, they promptly lost seven games in a row to the Yankees, Boston, and then St. Louis. Gamblers may have put them, put pressure on them to blow that lead, 
They had never lost more than four straight in either of the prior two years before that. In the one game, it talks about Eddie Seacott's wildness and lack of clutch hitting, which I'm not going to say a pitcher's lack of clutch hitting was necessarily proof of fraud. But, you know, again, you go down the list here in, in a couple of these games. Misplays by Swede Risberg uh, and Buck Weaver let in all the Yankees runs. Joe Jackson was thrown out twice on the base paths. Uh, losses, Seacott, uh, was knocked around. White, you know, so it's all of these games for the most part. The contemporary newspapers point to the usual suspects of guys who have who had been tied to the 1919 World Series. So it strains credibility to think that they learned their lesson and. Yeah, and there was the talk that they only felt comfortable season. winning when the Indians were winning, and so it was related. It was very clearly related to the pennant race. So this is found out in 1920. I believe that the Yankees actually offered up. The Yankees, I think, are eliminated by this final weekend series, and they the owner of the Yankees offers some of his players, which I have to assume would mean Babe Ruth as well, up to the White Sox to complete the season. So what obviously baseball doesn't allow this, but it would have been a very interesting wow. end of the season if Babe Ruth and other Yankees had been allowed to play on the White Sox for the closing part of the season. And you know what part of that was, was that that was the beginnings of, there was a, a sort of a, not sort of, there was a fissure for a long time in the American League where you had the Yankees, the White Sox, and the Red Sox ownership groups. I believe they were called the insurrectos and they were the ones who were always sort of at odds with Van Johnson and Landis and the American league. And then the other five teams of which Cleveland was one of them were the ones who were sort of good soldiers and fell in line and sort of towed the company line. And I'm sure partially because the Yankees, Red Sox and White Sox had so much power, they were, you know, they found themselves in opposition to the league more often but I would be shocked if that wasn't part of the reason why the Yankees owner decided to try and send the White Sox a bunch of his players and maybe have them take the pennant. Yeah, I think that makes a lot uh, of sense. The other faction. So baseball gets scared. They decide they need to clean up. They bring in this Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who had been a federal judge, who was a federal judge. And he comes in the sport and really rules the sport with an iron fist for the next 25 years or so. There are a lot of aspects to Landis's legacy, certainly not all positive by any means. I think that at least for the purposes of 1920, he is kind of the prototype for the modern sports commissioner. And so when you talk about David Stern or Pete Rozelle or Roger Goodell, there are elements of Kennesaw Mountain Landis in all of those. And they only, he only got the, would have gotten the authority that he got in a crisis situation. The owners, and Landis was obviously not a real softy towards players either, and certainly his relationship with guys like Ruth in the 20s is an example of that, and then his sort of refusal to allow even conversations about integration later on. But at the time, the owners ceding any power to anybody but themselves was a remarkable 
development and only one that they would have done when they felt like they had no choice. And in this instance, they had a sense of what was going on, both with the scandal and with what the potential resulting fallout could be. And they knew that they needed the appearance of now they thought Landis would fall more in line with them. And he was obviously much more independent, but they knew that they needed to at least appear to, they needed to do something that at least appeared radical. And then probably to their dismay, it actually. And the thing about Landis for all his many flaws is that he was an incorruptible commissioner. He did not favor the, he did not decide in favor of the owners. He was not in their pocket. He did what he thought was best for baseball and made decisions that were unpopular with the players, unpopular with the owners, but he was in a lot of ways, he was uncorruptible. So again, sort of a prototype for maybe at least in, in these type of questions, putting aside the integration stuff that comes later, which is very important, obviously. But in these contexts, very much sort of what a commissioner should be and that he does what he thinks is best for the sport, not what's best for the owners. Yeah, exactly. And that was still a lot of times what the owners wanted, but the fact that it wasn't 100% of the time, given the landscape of not just in baseball, but in general, sort of management, labor relations anywhere in the country at the time. You know what I mean? That that these owners of the biggest, one of the biggest businesses in the country, certainly the biggest sporting enterprise in the country, had their power checked in any meaningful way. So is kind of shocking. to wrap this up, we should just talk a little bit about the World Series. The Indians, despite the loss of Chapman, still make it to the World Series. They're led by their manager, Tris Speaker, who's a player manager, Hall of Fame outfielder. His glory years were with the Red Sox, but he ended up with Cleveland later in his career. He is 32 years old. He's a player manager. He leads the team. Uh, He has a 388 batting average, which is pretty good in 150 games. So he plays almost every game. Play a couple of other um, notable players. Stanley Kovaleski, who is a Hall of Famer, one of the lesser known Hall of Famers. He leads the Pitching staff, one of the outfielders is Smokey Joe Wood, who had been a great pitcher for the Red Sox in the teens and then blew out his arm. So a relatively unremarkable Indians team, but they win the World Series five to two. This was they had gone back to these nine game World Series for a little while uh, around this uh, late teens, early 20s time period. And the team they beat is the Brooklyn Robins, who are the forerunner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, they have a couple of players who were lucky enough to make the Hello Old Sports all-time National League New York team a few years back, including Zach Wheat, the Hall of Fame outfielder, and uh, Rube Marquard, who'd been a pitcher with the Giants, but then was finishing out his career in Brooklyn. They're called the Robins because of their manager, Wilbert Robinson. So they're the Brooklyn Robins. They lose this World Series 5-2 to two to Cleveland and then don't make it back for another 20 years. Yeah, and I I pointed out, you said that they we they made that team a few years ago. I think time is going very oddly these days, but it was only a few weeks ago. That they oh, made did I say years? I'm sorry. Yes, a few weeks team. ago. Um, 
another highlight of this series, and I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name. You could probably fill this in for me. There you go. An unassisted triple play in uh, in the World Series. You know, an, an unassisted triple play at all is bizarre, but certainly in the World Series, it happens worthy in of being Game mentioned. Five. A left-handed hitter hits the ball towards the second baseman, who moves to his right, jumps up, grabs the ball, tags second base, and then when he turns to throw to third base, he sees another runner directly in front of him, so he tags that runner as well. The first and only unassisted triple play in World Series history. And... One thing I kind of wanted to, the 1920 season is a part of this. It's the third of the four that I'm going to talk about, but you had kind of an interesting situation. And I think kind of highlights the transition from the teens era of baseball to the twenties era where you had from 1918 to 1921, there were four different pennant winners in each of the four leagues or in each of the two leagues. So you had the Red Sox, the White Sox. The Indians and then the Keys. And then who did the Red Sox beat in 18? The Cubs? The Cubs, the Reds, the Robins slash Dodgers in 1920, and then the Giants in 21. So half of each league made the World Series in sort of that four year period. A unique thing, especially with how few teams there were at the time and sort of the changing of the guard from the teens, which was the Red Sox and the A's and things like that. And by the early 20s, you're into the Yankees, the start of the Yankees run of winning the pennant most years. And then in the NL, as you get to the the early 20s, you're into the Giants team that went to four straight pennants. Hall of Fame pitcher Rube Marquard, who we was on our New York National League team in episode three and is, like I said, finishing up his career with the Dodgers. He is arrested for ticket scalping in Cleveland, uh, was alleged to be selling eight box seat tickets for $350. The original cost was $52.80. He was found guilty and fined $1 plus $3.50 in court costs. So that is basically 1920 in baseball. Did you have anything else to add? No, I think we covered a lot of it. The Negro Leagues is kind of a, a standalone for obvious reasons, but those last three stories all kind of inter the three major stories we talked about all kind of intertwined and and it was really a pivot point from one era to another and from the sort of stain of the black Sox scandal which people didn't even really fully understand as that season began even though it had already happened to by the end of that year those guys are gone baseball's firmly behind babe ruth and the home run Thank you all for joining us on this two-episode journey. We talked about Babe Ruth. We talked about Carl Mays and Rube Foster and Oscar Charleston and George Hallis and Jim Thorpe and Bill Tilden and Jack Dempsey and Man of War. And we even talked about Ed Strangler Lewis. So a little bit of everything from the sports landscape of 1920. We hope you enjoyed this lesson and this travel back in time 100 years. We look forward to speaking with you again next week for our next episode of Hello Old Sports. Until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, Old Sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network. 
your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.